You are listening to the Fly on the Wall podcast with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Conversations about business, politics, government, education, and so much more. Now, here is your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. Well, welcome. This is Fly on the Wall podcast. I am Ambassador Delano Lewis, and you may want to know about the name Fly on the Wall. Well, basically, it's conversations with distinguished and accomplished guests, and you, the listener, will be the fly on the wall as the conversation unfolds. And today, I want to welcome you to a very good friend and a distinguished person by any measure. Uh, We go way back into Washington, D.C., and it is Don Graham, Donald Graham, who was a former publisher of the Washington Post and is now chair of Graham Holdings Company. And we are great, great friends. And so welcome to the podcast, Don. Thanks so much, Joe. So you want people of great distinction and you stoop all the way to me. I really think this is... uh this is misleading your audience, but that's fine. Not at all, not at all. That's a great segue to uh, uh, just our initial conversation. Uh, you know, tell me a little bit about you, Don. I know a lot about you. Uh, I know about uh, just uh, your early career. I remember I know St. Albans and Harvard College, and but you did some interesting things. You not only joined the military, but uh, you did some other interesting things in D.C. Well, I'm... Uh, 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 Dell, I'm I'm uh, I was born in the year 1945. Right. I graduated from college in 1966, and I was drafted in 1966. We were in the early stages of the war in Vietnam. Early stages in the sense that the first large numbers of American troops, the first division strength American deployments to Vietnam took place in 1965. Mm-hmm. So I got drafted. I was a photographer and reporter, uh, information specialist with an infantry division in Vietnam for a year. I came back. Uh, uh, my family had owned the Washington Post newspaper since 1933. Right. My grandfather, Eugene Meyer, bought it at a bankruptcy sale, and my father, Philip Graham, was the publisher for 17 years. He sadly took his own life as a result of mental illness in yes, 1963. Sorry to hear that. And my poor mother, whom Del Lewis knew very well, uh, had to decide in 1963 that day or that week, would she do what people expected her to do and sell the newspaper, the right. company that that her father and grandfather had built, or would she somehow try to run it? Though there weren't many women trying to run something in 1963. And with the four, with her four children cheering her on, she decided to try to run it. She later said if she'd understood what she was getting into, she's not sure she would have. But I wanted, if she asked me to come to the paper and help her, I wanted to, but I thought I would be much better in the long run at the newspaper if I did something first to learn about the city. I actually thought of teaching in a public school, but at that time, the D.C. public schools had the requirement of an education degree, which I did not have. Right. So I uh, I uh, became a police officer. The war was on. The draft was on. The cops in 1966. Uh, 1968, when I got discharged, were all men. Mm-hmm. So there were very few men of eligible age available. Uh, they were eager to have military veterans. I told them I'd only stay about 18 months, and the guy recruiting me actually said that would be above average. So, <laughs> so uh, were, I became... You- 
you I were, became a police officer for a year and a half. And you were in the uh, precinct, ninth precinct in Northeast Washington, if I recall. The old ninth precinct in Northeast Washington, which while I was there became what it is today, part of the fifth district. Right. It was then a very low income, high crime neighborhood, which you knew you knew pretty well. Dell was uh, president of the Chesapeake and Potomac Telephone Company, D.C. That's correct. And, you know, I remember knowing about you. I knew about the Vietnam service, but then I knew that you were a police officer before you started working at the post. And I thought that was very admirable to really learn about the city and and get a sense of, of the city. And then I also, typical Don, you almost did every job uh, at the post. Uh, you started uh, as a reporter and just, you know, worked your way up. Well, I had what was in fact classic publisher's son training. I worked in advertising and circulation, but that's when I met you. We met each other about 1972. Right. Uh, is that right? That's about in a right. Group of, in a group of D.C. business people. And I can't, uh, it was uh, a couple of the older uh, D.C. business people had gotten together. You, me, Colby King, I remember. Right. I can't remember who else. And we were meeting with young up-and-coming business people, uh, political people from the city. It was about like 73. Tucker, the, uh, yeah. yeah. And I had just joined the telephone company as a public affairs manager. I'd been on Capitol Hill working for Walter Fontroy as now, the chief year of staff. Now, what year was that? Uh, I was with Walter, 71-72. He was just yeah. elected the first non-voting delegate in over 100 years since Reconstruction. Yeah. And I was his chief of staff. And then I was only there a year and a half or so when the telephone company came knocking on the door. There was no home rule at that time. And they, obviously, you as a business person know you had to deal with the district committee. So they came and I was introduced to the telephone company and ended up offering me a job. So I started did as a you know did you know the people on the district committee? Did you know John McMillan and Joel Broyhill and those people? I did not. I just knew of them. Uh, and I got yeah. to know them yeah. once I became the public affairs manager because that was I my see. that was my main job to do the liaison to Capitol Hill. And then yeah. um, within a couple of years, I got promoted and had a much wider responsibility. But you're right. That's when we met. And as one of the first things I did, was the, they said you not only have to learn the public affairs and the regulatory side of the business, but you've got to join the Greater Washington Board of Trade. And if you remember, uh, it's still going on, but at that time it was probably the premier uh, Chamber of Commerce business organization in the city. Am I right? Well, yes, it very much still is. Mm -hmm. It's uh, It has, as the name indicates, it has members from Maryland and Virginia as well as D.C., and I don't know what the balance is today. They may have more members from Maryland and Virginia than from D.C., right. but it definitely is by a mile the largest uh, membership uh, business organization in the region. And I had worked uh, pretty hard on that, um, and also I was involved with the Home Rule Committee, and I know uh, – uh, the Washington Post was a very strong corporate citizen, and I know you and the paper were very supportive of of pushing for home rule for the city. Because well, that goes that goes way back before me, but you're mm -hmm. absolutely right. That might be the oldest editorial position at the Washington Post was that, crazily enough, uh, as uh, Del Lewis knows. I've lived in Washington, D.C. my whole life. Right. I was in the military. I've run a business here. I paid lots of taxes. And I have never been able, because I live in Washington, D.C., to vote for a member of Congress or a senator with, with a vote. That's right. Uh, we have a non-voting delegate, as Puerto Rico does, as other places do. But the uh, 700,000 American citizens who live in D.C. 
have no representation in Congress. It was an outrage when we first started writing about it in the 1930s or 40s, and it still is. You're absolutely right. And most people, and I want our listeners to really pay attention here, because most people in this country do not know that. They do not know that still exists. When I came to Washington to work for the Department of Justice in uh, 1963, um, the only thing you could vote for in the city uh, at that time was the local school board. And then they passed a law that you could vote for president or vice president of the United States if you didn't have a residency somewhere else. And so that was it. And when I got here, I said, everybody's so excited about school board elections. Well, there were no local elections. And today there's a Mm non-voting delegate. Eleanor Holmes Norton has been there. She succeeded Walter Fontroy, a tremendous legislator. But she can vote in committee, but she can't vote on the House floor. And then you don't have any representation in the U.S. Senate. And that's still and, going you on know, today. And, and we, Dell and I, know our local history, and we understand why. This goes all the way back to the founding of the republic. During the time before there was a constitution of the United States, the Congress, uh, under the, the Articles of Confederation, uh, tried to meet in Philadelphia. Right. And apparently a group of veterans descended on Philadelphia and tried to march on Congress to demand that they be paid the pensions they were owed from the revolution. Correct. Uh, And Congress asked the governor of Pennsylvania to call out the militia to deal with this crowd, and he refused. So in the Constitution, an area is set aside for Congress to exercise exclusive jurisdiction so that that won't happen again. That's right. And all attempts to create home rule for the district have said, that's fine, we'll leave the federal government in control over the White House and the Capitol and the buildings where the federal government does its work. But where we 700,000 citizens live, we ought to be able to vote for our representatives in Congress, as everyone else listening to this podcast does. And, you know, it. it uh, you might say, if you're listening from another city, well, what difference does that make? It makes a big difference. Openers, right. uh, there's almost no business community in Washington, and that's a direct relationship. It's a, no business is going to voluntarily locate in a city where they have no member of Congress if they need someone to appeal to for some reason. That's right. Let me just add one more comment to that uh, on your history. You're quite right on, in, in, in the view of that history. But another piece of that, since the legislators uh, were living and working in in Philadelphia, and the militia came out and they were concerned for their security. That's when they technically took some land from Virginia and some land from Maryland and created the District of Columbia. And so that's why it's called Washington District of Columbia, a federal territory. And that's what Don was talking about. And that's what's... Yeah, that's right. And that, if you you know the wonderful musical Hamilton, Mm -hmm. a part of that musical is about Alexander Hamilton's efforts to uh, get the United States government to take over the debts that the individual states owed to their Revolutionary War soldiers. Right. And he compromised with his archenemy, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson wanted a capital mm-hmm. that was further south than Philadelphia, so they decided to put the capital where it is, what was then on a bunch of farms right. in, uh, between Maryland and Virginia. So Dell and I 
uh, know that history. And if you've seen the musical, you do too. <laughs> Absolutely. And that brings us up to uh, what happened when I left uh, Capitol Hill and went to work for the non-voting delegate. And we were pushing for home rule in the city. And I was working for the largest private employer in the in the district, and that was the Chesapeake and Potomac Telephone Company. So I had a lot of uh, relationships uh, with uh, business leaders, and Don was one of those. And we were the largest private employer, and we were pushing hard for home rule. And uh, lo and behold, in 1974, we did get a home rule bill passed, and you could elect a mayor and a city council and um, a a 13-member city council with a chair and a mayor, and you, uh, we got everything we wanted except, Don, you remember, we have no control over the budget. And today that's the still what's going on, that there's an elected mayor, an elected city council. They can. Uh, they also built in that Congress could overturn legislation uh, if they chose to, but uh, luckily the uh, legislators have done a very decent job and that has not happened. But there is a measure of autonomy and home rule in the district today. Yes. Uh, we do elect a mayor, we do elect a city council, and so there is some local politics, there are local politicians, and Dell, you were instrumental in agitating on Capitol Hill for that. And, Absolutely. Uh, grateful to you. Well, thank you, thank you. Well, I'd like to talk, uh, just to tell my listeners, uh, I'm talking to a good friend and colleague, uh, Don Graham, who was a former publisher of the Washington Post and uh, runs now Graham Holdings Company. And Don, I want to talk about the Washington Post. Uh, It is an institution uh, that is just uh, incredible in terms uh, of of journalistic integrity. And it was a paper, as you said, your grandfather purchased it at a bankruptcy sale in 1933. And it was in your family for a number of years. And your mother, Catherine Graham, uh, ran the paper extremely well for over two decades. But it was a paper that, that had national reputation but a strong local presence as well. And I, I want you to tell me a little bit about The Post. And I know I asked you when I saw you last about the movie, uh, The Post, and how you felt uh, The Post was characterized. But tell us about The Post. Sure. Well, uh, uh, the, the newspapers in the United States have a long history. They go back to the uh, 17th or 18th century. So the young Ben Franklin... Uh, trained himself as a printer and then founded uh, Poor Richard's Almanac, which was a weekly paper in Philadelphia. And he did it, among other things, because he could make money that way. And uh, uh, starting in that long-ago day, there were uh, many newspapers in American cities Mm -hmm. uh, for most of the first uh, 150 years of the country. So when my grandfather, Eugene Meyer, bought the Washington Post at a bankruptcy sale, he wasn't buying something of immense value. <laughs> the paper was losing about a million dollars a year in 1933 dollars. Wow. And it was the number four paper in a five-paper town. My uh, goodness. And the biggest paper in Washington was an afternoon paper called the Washington Star. Star. And it was a long time. In fact, he bought it believing that if he made the paper better, he would sell more papers, he would sell more advertising, and and would break even in about three years. An old man who worked for him told me that in the 1970s. Right. And he was absolutely right on the formula. 
and slightly and quite wrong on the timing. He lost <laughs> uh, a lot of money each year for 21 years. Wow! And uh, had he, I'm sure he had no idea that was coming when he when he made the purchase. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it was 1954 before the other morning paper in Washington called the Washington Times Herald. Uh, was losing even more money than we were, and their owners, the Chicago Tribune Company, decided they had no future and would sell to my grandfather. Mm-hmm. So they did in 1954, and after that, the Post was, uh, I would say, marginally profitable when I was when I was uh, when I was growing up. Well, that's incredible, and I I, I would like to you talk to the listeners about uh the the journalistic integrity and uh, particularly doing your your mother's uh strong leadership there and uh the Pentagon papers which was um you yeah. published um at the post which was talking about Vietnam and obviously I want to hear about that and also Rodgate uh these were very courageous kinds of journalistic leadership and uh to well, be complimented you know it's funny Dell this is a good subject Dell knew my mother Catherine Graham very well and I, had, uh, I have three daughters, Del, uh, Del and Gail had all sons. I have mm-hmm. four children, three of whom are daughters. Mm-hmm. And I try to tell them about uh, my life and their grandmother's life. But you cannot make anybody today understand what it was like to be a woman uh, as a, uh, running a company, being a manager in 1963, right? Because it was so utterly different to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when Kay Graham took the company public in 1971, I remember looking at this in the time. Fortune magazine published uh, not only the Fortune 500, the 500 biggest companies in the United States, but they published. Uh, a second 500. So they listed the thousand biggest companies in the United States. And I believe in 1971 or two, when the Washington Post company went public, Catherine Graham was the only woman CEO in the Fortune 1000. So it was 999 guys and her. (laughs) Now, why were there no other women CEOs? Because men just, and businessmen just did not believe what today seems so obvious right. that women's abilities are absolutely equal to those of men, that there are an equal number of able uh, women executives to men executives. And I'm a, I'm a, uh, I watched a Graham who never was, uh, who was always full of self-doubt, who was never a great believer in her own ability. Amazing. But I've watched her uh, try, Adele, you used the word integrity, and that's what she brought to the job. Right. She wanted the Post to be a great paper. She wanted the journalistic decisions there made fairly and without favoring any politician, any party, any cause. She wanted the readers to know honestly the news of what was going on in the country. You asked about two her and two stories. Right. The story of the Pentagon Papers, uh, only your older readers will remember. Mm-hmm. In June of 1971, uh, Dell and I were young men, and the United States was still in the middle of a war in Absolutely. Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, where there were more than 
uh, at its peak, there were more than 500,000 American soldiers there. And the war was fiercely controversial in the United States. Those who were fighting in it, uh, by and large, believed in it. Many old-fashioned American patriots believed in it. But the longer it went on, the more younger people, and students in particular, uh, came to really hate the war. Absolutely. And uh, so this is Adele Lewis's and my youth. Mm -hmm. The controversy over the war in Vietnam was as bitter as anything we are going through now. So Catherine Graham had to make the following decision. Uh, the, The New York Times had printed news stories based on what were no doubt about it top-secret government documents leaked to them by a man named Daniel Ellsberg. Right. Ellsberg properly had access to those documents, but wasn't supposed to give them to the New York Times. No way. <laughs> right. And, when the, and the government then did something extraordinary when the Times began printing these stories. The government went to court and for the first time in the history of the United States said, Judge, I want you to stop a newspaper, to stop the New York Times from printing any more stories based on these top secret documents Mm -hmm. until we have a trial and can prove to you that their release is damaging to the national security of the United States. And the the, uh, judge in question granted an injunction to stop the Times from printing any more stories, and the Times decided they were going to obey the law, so they complied and appealed. Right. Uh, at that point, Mr. Ellsberg gave the same uh, documents to the Washington, Washington Post. Post. <laughs> My mother had to make a decision based on the, those documents, based on something that didn't apply at the time. Our company was going public, selling stock to the public for the first time mm-hmm. that week. Oh, that's right. And uh, the government, someone in the government, sent her a message calling attention to the fact that we owned television stations as part of our company. The Times did not. And uh, that a company convicted of a felony, such as violating the Espionage Act, uh, couldn't own television stations. So in essence... The person providing this information was threatening to take those TV stations away from us Wow! if we should be so bold as to print that story. She had to decide that, that whether to print that day. The editor of the paper, Ben Bradley, was saying, this is the biggest story in the United States. We've got it. No one else does. We have to, to print it. And her lawyers and her business advisors, most of them, not all, we're saying, slow down, not so fast. Right. We, we, wouldn't, we think the risk is too big. We wouldn't do it. One very key legal advisor whom Del Lewis knew, Edward Bennett Williams, the greatest lawyer in the United States, right. told, ben, told Ben Bradley, you got to print. <laughs> you you, you got to do this. And that had huge impact on Kay Graham, who knew that at least one great lawyer thought that Ben was right. She decided to print, and it was the greatest decision she ever made. It, no question. Uh, it was upheld by the Supreme Court, and the uh, court said you cannot stop papers. You cannot exercise what prior restraint on papers. Papers not free from, from the criminal laws. 
if they publish something and then they're sued for libel or sued for uh, damaging the United States, that can happen. But you can't stop them in advance from publishing something. And that's the you know the tenet of a free press and in, in a, in a, in a democracy is incredible. Yes. And the courageous leadership of your mother, uh, Kay Graham, it was just it was just extraordinary. And that was a part of the movie, uh, The Post, right? Uh, yes, and, it's uh, the, I would say the movie is, uh, you know, it's I would say two thirds faithful depiction of history. No movie is a perfect depiction of history because history doesn't happen in two hours. Mm -hmm. So it was condensed. Some characters were invented. Some were omitted. But the the portrayal of her by Meryl Streep is is, uh, extraordinary. Yeah, I thought so too. I saw it and I I thought it was fantastic. And uh, Tom Hanks played uh, Ben Bradley, who was the editor at the time. Am I right? Right. Yes. Oh, it's fantastic. And in the time we have, we're talking to Don Graham, former publisher of The Post, and we have to talk about Watergate. Um, uh, It just was, the country was fixated on Watergate and what was happening on Watergate, and The Washington Post was right in the middle of all of that. Absolutely, Dell, and you were there. I mean, it's hard to describe. Uh, Watergate started with a burglary. Yes. It started with a break into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee uh, by five men who were caught, thanks to the brave actions of a security guard, Frank Wills, at the Watergate office building. That's right. And uh, the Washington Post reporting on the story began the next day when the uh, criminals were uh, brought to trial. And one of them turned out to have a number of a White House aide in his address book. Right. And uh, Carl, Carl Bernstein, one of our reporters, called that White House aide and said, Mr. Hunt, how did it happen? Your <laughs> telephone number wound up in the address book of one of these burglars. And Mr. Hunt said, oh, shit, and hung <laughs> up the phone. <laughs> and they were off. And uh, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, uh, starting right there, uh, did not say to themselves, no one at the Washington Post said, boy, we bet that President Nixon knew all about this burglary or covered it up, that it'll lead to his impeachment and his resignation. Nobody thought that. Nobody said that. Right. What they said was, this is strange. Mm-hmm. A burglary at the headquarters of a major political party during an election. <laughs> How did that happen? Who did it? And asking question after question, an inch at a time, being very careful that everything they reported was as true as they could learn, they proceeded story after story. It wasn't the Washington Post all by itself. A federal judge, John Sirica, who, in whose courtroom the burglars were tried, right. uh, uh, made it clear to the burglars that he didn't believe their stories and that he there, that uh, their sentencing would go differently if they were honest with him. And then the Senate Watergate Committee, which you and I, Dell, remember so oh, vividly. It was televised. It was everyone in the country was riveted. And you remember that that was, re- the, the president was a Republican. That's right. But the committee, Republicans and Democrats alike, didn't go after the president. They went after the facts. They wanted to know what had happened. Can I, can I interrupt you one second and tell you a story yeah. that relates to this that I don't think I've ever told you? Um, but I was in law school uh, in Kansas at Washburn School of Law in Topeka. 
and I think it was my senior year, might, might have been my third year, uh, the FBI was recruiting. They were had been recruiting accountants, but they started to say, we need to recruit lawyers because we need to have lawyers who know about evidence. Uh, so they started yeah. going to law schools. And so the agent f- the, of the Kansas City office, the agent in charge, came to my law school and gave this beautiful presentation about joining the FBI. And it was very exotic. He had a movie and said that you could be in your office in Los Angeles and the next day you could be in Chicago because you're following a bank robbery and blah, 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 blah. But your training, their first training is at Quantico at the Marine Base. And I said, well, I'm not so sure I want to go through that. But it was fascinating. But the the reason I'm telling the story, the agent in charge was Mr. Mark Felt. Right. And, I rem- and Mark I- Felt later became an assistant director of the FBI. That's right. And it was he who provided really quite crucial information to Absolutely. Bob Woodward Absolutely. in the course of the reporting of the Watergate stories. I never met Mark Feltdale. What oh, did you think of him? I mean, I was fascinated by him. He was a tall, lean, good-looking guy, and he had quite a presence. And I just remembered following him after I graduated from law school. I didn't go to I didn't go to the FBI. I went to the Justice Department in Washington. My first job out of law school was in the Justice Department and Bobby, under Bobby Kennedy in in uh, Washington D.C. But I kept following Mark Felt. I worked with agents when I was with the department, but I didn't. Uh, so I only met him when he when he was at the Kansas City office. But I kept following him and following him, and he rose high into the FBI. And he had some, as you know, some differences with uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and he was deep throat, and that came out. He 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 gave permission to the reporters to reveal the, who yeah. he, who he was. But that when was, he was a, when he was a very old man. That's right. But he was. Uh, this was quite famous. Bob Woodward came to the Post the same year I did, 1971, so I wasn't even the best reporter we hired in 1971. <laughs> Bob was the best reporter on the Post the day he was hired, and he still is. Right, because he still is. He works because he works harder than anybody else. Right. And he just, if he goes after a story, he wants to know the truth, mm-hmm. and he doesn't. He doesn't want to make some case for somebody or against somebody. He just wants to know what happened. Right. And uh, I, uh, uh, it's still worth going back and reading Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's book, All mm-hmm. the President's Men, the yes. same title as mm-hmm. uh, as the movie about Watergate. But uh, it was uh, it was a dramatic time. My mother was. In the middle of it, she, sure so was. she was always very awe-shucks about her role and said, well, I didn't really have anything to do with that, but mm-hmm. she did. She did. There was no question. Well, I, you know, this is fantastic. I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about the decision because the paper uh, is just so much a part of history. Uh, as I talked before, you, your mother, and the, uh, the Graham family, uh, just just important part of, of our society today. But you made a decision. I remembered uh, reading that uh, you moved up to chairman of the board and you hired uh, your niece, Catherine Weymouth, to be the, the, the publisher. And uh, it was your sister's child, and she became the publisher. And when she took over in 2008, uh, the paper was following, you know, lots of competition. People were getting news from other sources, uh, the Internet, uh, lots of other places. Revenues were declining. And uh, from what I read, she had 
discussion with you over lunch about options here. Maybe we should put the post for sale. And I would just well, tell uh, yeah, the, uh, and I want to say, Dell, the problem was never with people your age and mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was these irritating young people who uh, <laughs> who didn't never uh, honestly right. newspapers newspaper readership newspaper circulation the number of copies we sold began declining, not at the Washington Post, but at at newspapers in general around the country, Mm -hmm. before there was an Internet. So we did not, uh, the newspapers we produced didn't have as much appeal to younger readers. Then you had the enormous added impact of technology, that the news now was available from Yahoo or from Google or from Facebook. Mm Mm-hmm. And then you had the effect of that same technology on our advertising that that uh, the classified ads that Dell and I remember when he was running the phone company, they would place an ad in the post saying we have a job available. That's right. And people would come and people would come and apply for the job. Right. And those became uh, those migrated to the Internet. Companies found it simpler to just post their jobs on their website mm-hmm. or on and. Uh, uh, so the readership of the newspaper was going down and its revenue from advertising was going down. Uh, my poor niece, Catherine Weymouth, was an outstanding publisher. Right. And the best evidence for that is she hired uh, Marty Barron, the editor, who's still in charge of that paper and pretty mm-hmm. universally acknowledged to be a great, great editor. And that's not the only thing Catherine did by a mile. But she came to me and said, I think we ought to discuss other alternatives, we never said we're going to sell the paper. We certainly didn't say we're going to sell it to the highest bidder. Mm-hmm. We thought to ourselves, is there somebody who could bring to the post some things that we don't have? And after the first time I we talked to Jeff Bezos, I thought, well, uh, uh, you know, five years later, I would say evidence is mounting that Jeff knows a little more about technology than I do. <laughs> right. uh, I'm 73 years old, and I know about as much technology as your average, as your average 73-year-old. Right. And uh, Jeff, and, and you know, one of the things wrong with the news business was technology, was mm-hmm. that we did not understand nearly as well as anybody in the tech business uh, how to deliver information uh, over an iPhone, over uh, on, on, on a tablet, on a, on a personal computer. We were very good at delivering news on paper, in print, but uh, that wasn't what people wanted anymore. Right. So, Jeff, uh, as far as I'm concerned, we're talking in February of 2019. Up to this date, Jeff's, Jeff's been... Uh, I, I, I feel very fortunate that Jeff's been an outstanding owner. Oh, that's fantastic. You made the right decision, and you need to sit that decision for the for the post, for the right reasons. Don, you've been fantastic. Before we close, uh, I just want the listeners to know that Don uh, was an extraordinary business person from a family of leaders. But the post, uh, my memory and association was that they were great community corporate citizens, and Don, you did so much with the paper, and not only in terms of journalism and, and what you did and what the paper did for this country, but you also were a local presence. And you, through the paper, uh, you participated in all kinds of activities. Uh, you volunteered for things. You were on boards. 
and you gave money, you were quite philanthropic. And I, I want to close with, with one story that you might remember. I was on the board of Arena Stage. Uh, it's a regional theater for our listeners. And it's quite prominent and still going on today. And we were, uh, Tom and Zelda Fitchhandler were the, she was the artistic director and Tom was the administrator, husband and wife. And it's just a wonderful uh, theater in Southwest Washington. And I was on the board and trying to raise some money for the theater. And so Joe Albritton was running uh, Albritton Communications and I called on Don Graham at the Post and uh, we wanted to talk to him about raising money for Arena Stage. And I'll never forget, Don, uh, I sat in the office and I was with Tom Fitchhandler and you and Albritton said, um, we want to step out of the room. And you stepped out of the room and you came back into the room and said, um, we just want to tell you that we want to support this uh, effort and uh, the Post is going to give a million dollars, and uh, Albritton's going to give a million. And uh, Tom and I looked at each other, just flabbergasted. But that's the kind of things that you did, uh, and and I'm sure you continue to do through Graham Holdings. And I was going to say thank you. Well, you're welcome, Dell. I got to say, you were the uh, for those everybody listening to this podcast. I'm sure knows. Dell Lewis was the community business leader in Washington. He was the person who could call all the other businesses together and had uh, the respect of every one of them. And that's. But uh, the other thing we should say is, typical, you were on that board, Dell. Mm-hmm. In the time we're talking about, uh, not now, with all a wonderful group of, uh, of uh, theaters that have sprung up since then. But when I was growing up in Washington, Arena Stage was the only place you could go see a play. Right. Talk about how different our city was uh, uh, 60, 70 years ago. There was what they call a touring house, the National Theater, where Mm -hmm. shows would try out for Broadway. But if if you wanted to see a play by Shakespeare or a play by some contemporary American playwright, there was exactly one live theater in Washington, D.C., which was run by this extraordinary woman, Zelda Fitchandler, who right. Dell mentioned. That's a great memory, Dell. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And it was also theater in the round, uh, which was also quite quite fascinating. But uh, it's quite unusual. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, Don, listen, I'd love to. Why don't we do an episode two so our listeners could hear more about our relationship and things you've done? I served on the board of the Meyer Foundation, which was your your grandparents, Agnes and Eugene Meyer. It's a regional foundation. You were the, you were the chairman of that board. That's right. And, I, uh, and uh, you know, it would be a joy to do this again, Dell, and thank you for the opportunity. Oh, my pleasure. You've been a tremendous guest. You've been listening to Fly on the Wall podcast with Don Graham, former publisher of the Washington Post, and now chair of Graham Holdings. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you, Dell. A pleasure. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Fly on the Wall podcast. For more information about this episode and previous episodes, plus great merchandise and more, please visit our website at flyonthewallpodcast.com today.